Well, it's official. In approximately one hour, we will be getting PPI, that's producer price inflation data, and we will be getting retail sales data. All the retail sales data is expected to come in negative from month-over-month -month reads of negative 0.4, negative 0.1, X uh, auto, X auto and gas, negative 0.2, control group, negative 0.3. Everything's expected to be negative compared to the massive gains we had last month uh, reporting back from January of uh, 3%, 2.3, 2.6, 1.7 respectively. So those are retail sales that are going to be coming out in about an hour. Uh, and then we will also be getting a PPI information like final demand uh, month over month expected to be 0.3. Uh, X food energy 0.4, X food energy trade 0.3. So we'll see what we end up getting with that. Uh, in the meantime, I've got this awesome needler here. Uh, if you too want an awesome needler, ooh, oh wow, that's that's larger and stronger than I thought. <laughs> uh, anyway, uh, check it out. Go to metkevin.com/needler. I also linked it down below. And yeah, I said met with one e. Metkevin.com/needler. But this thing's sick. <laughs> that's not even fair. Now I'm gonna beat. I'm gonna beat my children with this. No, that sounds really bad. <laughs> we we play Nerf Wars. Uh, okay, so anyway, and I think that'll help me win. So let's get uh, into some of the topics of the day. But that thing, that thing's freaking awesome. Uh, all right, so anyway, let's get started. Uh, first thing I want to touch on is the good old AMC debacle because we had a vote uh, subject to a lawsuit. Uh, so uh, let's uh, let's get some of this information out of the way. All right. Well, it's official. AMC has voted on what is going to happen with the APE units. Uh, AMC is saving the APE units, according to shareholders, that is. Apparently, uh, Adam Aaron and shareholders have voted in unison to allow and authorize the APE units to essentially merge with the AMC units. Basically, what this does uh, is it allows AMC to issue more shares. That was always the issue with AMC. They had a lot of debt and their goal was to be able to minimize the debt. Well, usually the way you minimize debt is you raise equity, but AMC was restricted by shareholders. They weren't allowed to raise any more equity. They weren't allowed to issue any more shares basically. So instead they came up with this stock split idea and made these ape shares. Uh, which supposedly had equal value as the AMC shares. And then they made these APE shares, basically diluted the crap out of the AMC ones. That's why the AMC shares plummeted. And then the APE shares plummeted even more because there was no guarantee those would ever convert to AMC shares, which is basically exactly what I said many months ago <laughs> when I warned against holding the APE share units because I warned they would go under a dollar. I sold mine at $8.00. Sure enough, Ape ended up going under a dollar. It's sitting somewhere just over a dollar now. But anyway, shareholders have officially voted. They've officially decided to allow the APE shares to merge with the AMC shares. And as you would expect, that is compressing the valuation of actually both of them. Uh, that's because really the leftover shares at AMC will all now be worth less. AMC shares were down 15% just yesterday on this, down to $4.64. Uh, APE shares, you would have thought, would go up because of the arbitrage, but they actually went down. They're down 5.2% at a buck 64. And the reason for that is likely because there's still a lawsuit this has to get through. 
Adam Aaron tweeted yesterday, saving AMC is my professional mission. And remember, I own millions of AMC shares and ape units too. I'm very much want for AMC to succeed. I'm absolutely passionately convinced that what you approve today is in the best interest of AMC and shareholders. Right, because remember, the goal of AMC is to get rid of their debt. Adam Aaron goes on to say, so what happens now? We cannot implement what you approve today until the litigation in Delaware courts is resolved. The next court hearing on the matter is set for April 27th. We will hear, we will update stockholders when we have additional information. Unfortunately, a court hearing means next to nothing. Usually legal matters can take years to resolve and you could potentially be diamond handing APE and AMC for years waiting for that legal uh, claim to actually resolve itself before these two shares end up actually merging together. In the meantime, AMC continues to burn a lot of cash. I'm personally a big fan of actually looking at the fundamentals and knowing what is inside of the reports uh, of the companies that you invest in. And it's not that spectacular, unfortunately. So the first thing I want to do is go over to the AMC cash flow statement. Because AMC in their earnings call regularly brags about how much cash they have available. In fact, let me show you that first. So the AMC, there it is, let's see here. Uh, and this is the AMC earnings call. Here they brag about how they're reducing their debt on lease obligations, which is nice. We wanna see them reduce debt, that's fantastic. They talk about how they're potentially doing better than their competition, how they've announced their new uh, AMC popcorn uh, with a Walmart partnership. It's perfectly popcorn is apparently what it's called. Uh, they're talking about how the box office is opening up. They talk about how they ended the year with over $840 million of cash, quote, or undrawn revolving credit line. Now that's actually really important because if you say you have 840 mil of cash, it's very different from saying you have 840 million in cash and a credit line. Because that basically means like, hey, maybe we have 100 mil of cash and we're able to draw on debt <laughs> and have more debt. But the whole point of AMC is to try to get out of debt, not draw on more debt, right? So anyway, the first thing I like to do is I like to look at the cash flow statement for the company. As of the end of last year, the company burned $840 million in the year in free cash flow. That's, that's uh, $70 million a month in free cash flow being burned. That's created by $628 million in operating losses, plus about $202 million in capital expenditures. When we actually look at the assets, the good news is they do have $631 million in cash. So it's really $631 million in cash and the other about $200 on that undrawn credit line. They do have some receivables here as well, but just looking from a cash point of view, they've got about enough cash to lose as much money this year as they did last year. But if they get to that point, they would be bankrupt because then they'd be upside down. So in other words, they need to do everything that they can to raise money now. That's why they created the APE units. Um, unfortunately, of the APE units that they were able to, I hate to say this, quote unquote, dump on normies, they only dumped them at a share price of about $2.25, which is unfortunate because had they dumped when Kevin dumped, they would have been able to dump for about eight bucks and they would have realized somewhere around three and a half times as much money. Uh, but anyway, uh, they didn't do that. They waited like a month before they dumped. 
We knew this was going to happen. Uh, I mean, this was so obvious, but whatever. So uh, now one thing that is good news is their operating costs, their operating leverage is positive. So if you're looking for some kind of good news, uh, they increased their operating costs by 28% while they increased revenues by 54%. That's fantastic. But do remember that even though at the end of 2022, we were knocking on the door of 2.2, actually just over $2.2 billion in admissions, that still is only 54% of where they sat in 2018. Now their food and beverage revenue is sitting at 78.6% of 2018 level, which is good. It's a sign that people are, you know, still buying uh, a lot more junk at AMC, the high profit junk, possibly because, you know, a lot of people are very sympathetic to AMC. I'm as well. When I go to an AMC theater, I actually purposefully buy the stuff I ordinarily wouldn't buy. I purposefully buy the sodas that ordinarily you would sneak in. Now you buy it there as sort of charity because it's a money losing business. Kind of like the Cheesecake Factory. I go to the Cheesecake Factory and I'm like, I feel like I'm eating at a charity because they lose money, <laughs> which is kind of sad because the stuff there is really expensive. Anyway, the company's burning nearly a million dollars a day in interest expense. Uh, that is because the year-ended interest expense was about $336 million, and obviously there are 365 days in a year. So obviously the company is spending money like crazy. I have absolutely no idea how they actually expect to go profitable. I don't, I don't see that path to profitability. Uh, even with these numbers up, they had an operating loss of $522 million. Uh, for a net loss of nearly a billion dollars uh, on, on a gap basis. If uh, we go all the way back to the 2018 report, uh, maybe maybe there's a little bit of hope because they actually had operating income of $265 million in 2018. Uh, unfortunately, then when you actually uh, factor in operating, uh, or, or should I say corporate borrowings and interest expense, you get to net earnings of only $110 million. Uh, the year before that, they had a loss of nearly $500 million, and they've kind of always been bouncing around an income of around $100 million, but right now they're losing about a billion dollars. So they've got a long way to go. Free cash flow, pretty dang negative. They really, really need to figure out how to get out of debt, but honestly, even if they had zero debt, they'd still be pretty largely upside down. So I guess the bottom line is if I were an AMC shareholder, uh, which I'm not, uh, I, I, you know, I, I, a couple of years ago, I bought some AMC shares and I promised I'd hold them for a year. I held them for 16 months uh, and then I sold part of the community. That was, that was the goal. Uh, and that's exactly what I did. But uh, now, now what you really have is uh, some resentment and frustration actually coming up in the AMC community. There's pretty much not a single tweet from C uh, from uh, from the CEO that doesn't get a bunch of replies from people basically upset. Uh, people saying they've lost 90% of their money that they've invested into uh, AMC, that they should have never invested in AMC, that they wish they dumped their APE st uh, stocks, like Meet Kevin said many months ago. At the same time as you have the CEO promising he stopped selling stock, he only made that promise after he dumped $42 million of AMC stock on, quote unquote, the normies. Uh, at the same time, he tries to justify his dumping and the dilution of AMC stock by blaming the hedge funds. AMC CEO has now reached out about failed delivers. Oh my God, $36 million worth of failed orders. There must be naked shorting going on, he says. Basically, what he's trying to do is he's trying to jerk off the retail investors who still believe in this MOAS coming 
and uh, he's trying to justify that he really is the ape out there trying to save retail. But the reality is this is a failing business model. And while it's possible, it seems extremely unlikely that the stock is going anywhere in the near term, specifically because of the overhang of the lawsuit. But even when their lawsuit completes, the company didn't raise a lot of money. All they managed to do was massively dilute AMC shareholders. So the biggest concern for me is a law. If, if you were a longer term shareholder would be the actual fundamentals and the fundamentals are not getting that much better. The annuals for 2022 were not that great. And yes, there is hope because, hey, maybe the box office is going to look a lot better this year. That is true. Box office does look like a lot better. Uh, that is that is your hopium right now. I mean, take a look at this right here. If you want hopium right here, uh, they do talk about the problem of generating audiences and, and uh, being quite different after the pandemic. However, they do hope that uh, with uh, maybe 30 or more movies coming that'll gross over $100 million in 2023, maybe they could do very well. But remember, what you have is you have people in this sort of space demanding a whole lot more wages these days. Uh, you know, Walmart, McDonald's, everyone raising prices and sort of this retail and hospitality space in terms of wages, right? It's not indicative of wage price spiral. It's indicative of sort of a lagging of wages that should have gone up a while ago. Uh, but anyway, AMC is probably going to face those sort of wage increases as well. You're facing a recessionary environment at the same time as you basically have less than a year of cash left. Not super excited uh, about uh, the future prospects, but hey, you know what? The CEO seems to be pretty excited. This is coming at the same time as insiders sold $76 million worth of shares in the last 12 months, while at the same time, out of the one side of their mouth saying, we are with you, on the other side of their mouth saying, we sold $76 million of shares. See, that's not good. Unfortunately, that's bad, <laughs> and, and, and it sucks. Uh, we obviously know what selling pressure does to a stock uh, from insiders uh, when all you have to do is look at what happened with Elon Musk. Elon Musk sold $24 billion worth of Tesla shares last year, created the perfect down channel, which just increased the shorting because it was the easiest stock ever to short. Retail only net bought $15 billion of Tesla shares last year. So basically retail normies got dumped on, including me. I got screwed by that too. Uh, so unfortunately uh, for AMC, the fundamentals for AMC are substantially different from those for a company like Tesla. So at least one of those two has hope. Anyway. That's my update on AMC. Uh, if you need life insurance, by the way, check out the link down below. You just go to metkevin.com slash life. Or if you want to release some anger, I encourage going to metkevin.com slash needler and getting yourself one of these uh, needler nerf guns because they're pretty sick. You could also, uh, if you need to, a place to sell your stocks, you could go to Weeble and you could go to metkevin.com slash free and get up to 12 free stocks by using Weeble, which is this platform right here. All right. Or you could just check out the programs on Building Your Wealth link down below. <laughs> I'm chock full of them today. Okay, next up, Willow Project. Okie dokie. Willow Project. Ooh, yeah. A lot of folks have been asking me about the Willow Project and Joe Biden's flip-flop. Uh, and no, this is not like a RuneScape a tree farm where you're going to get to level 99 woodcutting off of willows, which would be a crazy idea anyway, but maybe you're trying to sell the willow logs on the Grand Exchange. I have no idea. But a lot of people have been complaining to me and saying, Kevin, did Biden literally just flip-flop? After all, he ran a campaign under the premise of 
we will stop all oil drilling on federal land and there will not be another single oil drilling lease on federal land. And we may have just gotten exactly that. In fact, the Biden administration just gave the green light to a controversial project known as the Willow Project, which again is not a RuneScape tree farm. It is a massive oil and gas development initiative in the National Petroleum Reserve in Alaska. The project is not the biggest oil and gas project currently under construction, but it's pretty freaking big. I'll give you some numbers. And yeah, Joe Biden flip-flopped. And trust me, my vision is so good, I can identify a flip-flopper from three feet away. Nobody knows flip-floppers better than I do. The Willow Project, operated by ConocoPhillips, is expected to produce up to 160 thousand barrels of oil per day at its peak. It has the potential to produce 590 million barrels of oil over a 30-year period. And the estimated cost for building the project out is $6 billion. It's expected the project's going to create about 2,000 construction jobs and then ultimately be left with about 300 permanent positions once the uh, facility is in operations. Uh, in, in comparison, some of the world's largest oil and gas projects currently under construction dwarf this price tag. Remember, this price tag is at $6 billion. While Russia and Mozambique LNG, their liquefied natural gas project, has a price tag of between 20 to 30 billion rubles. I'm just kidding, dollars, <laughs> 20 to 30 billion uh, dollars. So a lot more than, uh, than, than this project in Alaska. Uh, and we'll have the production capacity of several million tons of natural gas uh, per year. It's pretty big. Uh, but uh, this project is unique because it's being conducted under the Natural Petroleum Reserve in Alaska, which is obviously United States land. And uh, this is one that has been the subject of a lot of climate debate. The Natural Petroleum Reserve in Alaska is basically this massive area of about 23 million acres. It's literally the single largest unit of public land that exists in the United States. The area was established uh, under or uh, as the Naval Petroleum Reserve uh, number four in 1923. So this thing's been around for a long time as a petroleum reserve. And according to some estimates from 2010, these are the, the uh, most recent estimates I can actually get. I'm trying to get better estimates on it. But, but going back to 2010, the entire area there in Alaska, this, this petroleum reserve, potentially has 8.7 billion barrels of oil and 25 trillion cubic feet of natural gas. Now, from an oil point of view, that would represent about two years of U.S. oil production. That doesn't sound like a lot, but when you think about it as just one area of the United States, not the Gulf, not Texas, other big oil producing areas, two years just in this area, it, based on a 2010 estimate, it's a lot of oil. There's a lot of oil there. Now, when you add in fracking, you potentially have five to 10x the amount of oil over there. It's insane how much oil there is over there. The problem is the area is also the home to various wildlife species like uh, caribou, polar bears, migratory birds and fish, many of which are essential to the livelihood of the, indig uh, indig the people who live there. Uh, and uh, there, there's a lot of uh, a climate complaint about drilling for more oil, obviously, because on one side you have climate change activists who voted for Joe Biden under the idea that we were going to drill more oil. But then at the same time, you have Russia invading Ukraine, creating this massive oil price spike. 
that has led to uh, this massive increase in the cost of living for people. And as much as we want to move over to green energy, we have to be like we have to be real with ourselves. Over the next 15 years, we're not going to be able to just flick a switch and go 100% green. Look at California. California refuses to update their natural gas infrastructure. And so what do you have? You have uh, natural gas facilities operating with 1970s style efficiency because lobbyists and politicians in California say, if you're going to update one part of that natural gas facility, you need to turn it all green. And it's like, well, you can't. Okay, well, I guess you're not updating it. I mean, that's the kind of political stuff that I learned when I ran for governor in California. Hey, came in second place. Uh, but just take it from the Wall Street Journal's editorial board. They had a good piece. Uh, they suggest that the decision to approve the Willow Project is what they call a pragmatic one. Even though it's politically unpopular, they're calling it pragmatic because they say, given the need for domestic oil production to maintain energy independence and avoid dependence on foreign oil, it's better that we drill rather than rely on countries like Russia. After all, as of uh, December 2021, Russia was producing somewhere around 10.5 billion barrels of a million barrels of oil per day, million, uh, making it one of the world's largest oil producers. The United States produces about 12 million a day. So we're, we're basically right there with Russia in terms of production. Now, obviously, there's a lot of controversy around this because you've got a lot of uh, like environmental impact groups who are extremely frustrated about this Willow Project. There are endless TikTokers going viral, putting basically Joe Biden saying, no more drilling. And then now we're drilling <laughs> on, on TikTok. I mean, it's an easy way to make fun of Joe Biden uh, because basically it's Joe Biden contradicting himself uh, about uh, the administration's initial decision to protect the Arctic National Wildlife Refuge and war from drilling early 2021. Uh, to minimize the freak out that's going on, what they're trying to do is they're trying to say, hey, well, we're going to keep certain areas off limits so that way we could protect the caribou and the migratory birds. And this is kind of what Obama did as well. But you're still going to have some issues. For example, Time.com, Time Magazine, states the project could end up having implications for our climate change goals as basically it could potentially hinder our greenhouse gas emission goals. But then again, people on the other side are like, well, if we're going to use the oil gas anyway, it may as well be our own. And if we can minimize the impact on wildlife, then, then maybe it's okay. After all, we want to be energy independent because that's pretty critically important. Of course, we want to move towards green, but it's going to take time to do that. And you may as well be as efficient as possible with oil and natural gas in the meantime. Again, we can't flick the switch and get over it. We, we got to build out, for example, battery and storage de uh, deployment first. NPR reports that the Willow Project is seen as a significant shift from the Biden administration's stance on fossil fuels. I mean, that's pretty obvious. Uh, and uh, as the project moves forward, it, it'll obviously be the subject of a lot of debate. So now you kind of have a little bit of a summary of what's going on with it uh, and, and, and hopefully some useful insight into it. A lot of people have been asking me about it. So uh, it's something worth noting. Uh, the Laughing Fish here on Twitch says, is energy independence really on Biden's docket? Uh, probably after the, the drama of what's going on with Russia, probably yes. Okay, so that's uh, that's what we got for the Willow Project. All right, let's now look at what else we have. There's uh, lots. Mm -hmm. Oh, this is a good one. All right. Oh, I like this one a lot. Okay, standby. Okay. We are also, just so you know, about 
38 minutes away from big, big old data releases. Bigly data releases. That looked like a Rust mug. It is a Rust mug. It says Rust. <laughs> uh, <laughs> Steve, right on cue, my friend. <laughs> Biden doesn't think for himself. He doesn't know if he's alive, so he definitely won't remember any campaign promises. <laughs> oh. Scathing. Scathing. All right. Next up, we got to talk about how Bitcoin may have been the contributor to the bank runs, right? Yes, literally, crypto may have killed the banks. What an incredible irony that is, because after all, that is maybe not ironic. That's kind of been the point of crypto is get away from centralized finance, get away from funny money and fiat. But I don't think anybody actually thought that crypto would end up causing bank runs in America. But that's exactly what's happening. And if you need to protect yourself at home with a needler, metkevin.com slash needler or the link down below. And if you're on the receiving end of this, get life insurance by going to metkevin.com slash life. You can get it as little in as little as five minutes and Apple or Android pay for it. So what do we got? Well, First of all, we know that the Justice Department is now investigating some sus stock sales at Silicon Valley Bank by executives. But what's more actually interesting is what happened with Signature Bank and how that relates to Silvergate and Silicon Valley Bank. Get this. So Sil or Silvergate, which was a bank in New York, was frequently considered, quote, a place of ambition, not prestige. And what's really interesting is how they went from basically a bank doing deals for people like Donald Trump, cab owners, and quote-unquote slumlords, they were saying, to crypto. Now, they've been always trying to figure out how could they grow? What's the best way for them to grow? In fact, one of the big ways they tried growing at Signature Bank was doing loans for taxi companies. Unfortunately, they made those loans right before the pandemic. They also made a lot of loans for Donnie T. Donald Trump and the Kushners were frequently questioned about their relations with Signature Bank. Signature Bank ended up dropping them as clients, closing about $5.3 million worth of deposit accounts uh, that uh, Trump and Kushner ended up having over at Signature Bank. Uh, this bank has had a lot of drama and a lot of backlash from both sides. Even the Democrat, Letitia James, who's the New York public advocate, uh, or then public advocate, <laughs> she's got another job, uh, still over there, obviously. But anyway, she ended up calling uh, this bank the city's worst landlord, or actually they put the bank on the city's worst landlord. And the reason for that was not that Signature Bank actually owns properties, but they do so many loans to office and apartment building landlords that they basically called this bank such a bad bank because they enable bad landlords to own buildings that don't provide for basic living conditions. That doesn't sound good. So Signature Bank's got some pretty interesting history when it comes to Trumps, the Kushners, taxi companies right before the pandemic, uh, uh, landlords for office and apartment buildings. But this is where things took a shift. In 2015, the Winkelwas brothers, Gemini, Gemini Exchange, got one of New York's first licenses to run a cryptocurrency exchange brokerage. That means you go to Gemini, you're like, oh yeah, I would give you $1,000 of cash. Please give me your Gemini token so I could go buy Bitcoin or crypto or whatever, right? Guess where that cash went? Signature. So... Signature Bank ended up taking crypto clients. 
not just Gemini, but they ended up taking on Coinbase and Circle as well. At one point, Coinbase has had about $240 million at Signature Bank, and Paxos, which also provides a stable coin, a USD-based style stable coin, Paxos ended up having about $250 million in uh, deposits at Signature. So basically, Signature was basically the way uh, that people would deposit cash and then get crypto. The exchanges, whether it's Paxos, Coinbase, Circle, Gemini, or sort of what you see. But when you put your money in, the cash went to go sit at Signature in many cases. So there's a chance if you've used one of those platforms, there's a chance your cold hard cash was sitting at Signature Bank. And this bank brought in tens of billions of deposits. Tens of billions, that's a lot of money. They were able to bring in tens of billions of dollars during the crypto boom. They made lots of money during the crypto boom. A whole heck of a lot of money. And they made so much money that unfortunately when things started flip-flopping in the crypto market in 2022, they started seeing exactly the opposite happen. But it wasn't just Signature. Take a look at quarter-on-quarter -quarter changes in total deposits at these banks. Look at, and then look at some of these names right here. Quarter-on-quarter -quarter total changes in deposits. Q1, you had Silvergate, also a crypto-related uh, on-ramp bank, lost about 6.3% of deposits in Q1. Signature and SVB, Silicon Valley Bank, were still gaining. By the second quarter, almost all of them were losing deposits, with the exception of Silvergate, slightly flat there. And by the fourth quarter, the deposit withdrawals here were massive. Deposit changes, massively negative. And a lot of this, many say, had to do with the crypto market slowing down. As the crypto market slowed down, less people invested into crypto, as less people invested into crypto, people also had less, and crypto prices were falling, people also had less money to invest into venture capital or other businesses. They were losing money in the stock market. Long and short of it, what ended up happening? Well, while uh, Silvergate ended up having billions of dollars of deposits, especially, for example, $1.5 billion of deposits in the first two months alone of 2022, they plummeted to all of a sudden seeing massive withdrawals. In fact, at one point, they were collecting nearly as much as three times as many deposits from crypto as they were from regular depositors. That actually ended up leading some entrepreneurs to argue they didn't want to do business with a bank that has basically become a crypto bank. Because again, the bank at one point was taking in $3 of crypto deposits for every $1 of actually what made the bank notable, working for entrepreneurs and uh, landlords, for example. But all of these industries obviously got hit. We know taxis got hit. We know, uh, uh, thanks to Uber and Lyft, we know crypto got hit. We know uh, apartment buildings and landlords and commercial landlords have all got hit. Mortgage-backed securities are getting crushed. And now all of a sudden, hundreds of millions of dollars started getting pulled out of the bank as it seemed like the bank was potentially running out of money last week. And that led them to fall into FDIC receivership on Sunday. Now, part of the reason Signature Bank was seized was because of what they called a crisis of confidence. That's what regulators said. A lot of people in the industry say no. The bank was actually seized because it was a crypto bank. And whatever they can do to punish banks that were related to crypto is what they wanted to do. And it's kind of interesting because Silvergate was a crypto bank. 
Signature was a crypto bank. And even though Silicon Valley Bank wasn't technically a crypto bank, it did provide loans to startups in the crypto space. And guess what? All three of them failed. We now have the two biggest bank failures that have happened since 2008's WAMU failure in just the last week. These are pretty big banks that failed and they happened in just the last week and they all three of these, two of them being some of the larger two, but all three of them happen to be involved in crypto. Now to show you the scope of kind of where these failures are on the time frame, it's worth looking at this, uh, this bubble chart over here. And really it shows you, here's Washington Mutual's bank failure bubble chart, shows you kind of how big the bubble is, right? Uh, and then you could kind of see how big the bubbles are of Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank based on how many assets they have under management. So it's a pretty big deal, but it's very interesting that crypto almost somewhat feels like the virus that is killing its host from within. Think about that for, for a moment. Crypto goes in and gets money from banks or deposits money with banks. Crypto market, crypto in, in the first the whole point of crypto is to get away from banks and fiat money, right? And the more crypto deposits there were, the more at risk of collapse these banks actually became. Some articles and authors, like over on Bloomberg, are now suggesting that, quote, the crypto bros are getting pushed to the brink of banklessness. But it kind of makes you wonder, is it almost crypto becoming more valuable and more brilliant by being associated with banks, killing their hosts, the banks, sending people into more of a fear tailspin around banks and potentially into crypto. It's kind of brilliant. Now, whether it's orchestrated or not, look at what Bitcoin is doing uh, on Weeble. Uh, by the way, if you want to sign up for Weeble, they're doing a 12 free stock offer right now. Just go to metkevin.com slash free or click the link down below. Uh, that's metkevin.com slash free. But anyway, take a look at this. Since the banking crisis was resolved with an unlimited bailout, crypto has exploded uh, over about 25% here from about uh, 1950 to 249, or at least Bitcoin over here. Uh, Bitcoin, huge recipient of, of this recovery here. Uh, you've got Ethereum still sitting around nearly 1700, also a nice bounce here. Of course, a lot of people bag on crypto and say, hey, you know what, crypto is just another risk asset. But I do think it's really interesting that the three banks that were really associated with crypto all just happened to be deleted uh, or in receiverships, should I say, uh, while at the same time reiterating the whole purpose of Bitcoin and crypto. It's kind of brilliant. Now, of course, there were other things that led to the potential failure of these banks. Remember, the government is saying, well, Signature failed because they were supposed to give us uh, uh, reliable and consistent data. We didn't end up getting that from executives on Sunday morning. They lost 20% of their deposits just Friday alone. It's worth noting that Bank of America is bragging about how $15 billion have, has gone to Bank of America, how excited they are about how much money has gone to Bank of America. But it kind of makes you wonder how much of a Trojan horse crypto has become to actually eating the banking system alive from within. <laughs> Kind of incredible. So anyway, that's that's very interesting about, uh, it's, it, it, yes, as uh, Alvaro here says, that's a very interesting theory about crypto. I hate to say it, but it's, it's very interesting to me. This is the smartest Meet Kevin take I have heard in like five years.
I don't know if that's a compliment. <laughs> uh, and then, of course, somebody else replies here, love me some gold. All right. Very well. So there you have a crypto update. <laughs> okay. Uh, all right. What else do we want? Oh, boy. This is fun. All right. So uh, next, how about we talk about the Russian jet? Yeah. <laughs> oh, God. The Russian jet. Oh, the jet, jet, jet. Mm, this is going to take me a minute. So let's listen into CNBC just for a moment here. I don't think they do that. I think they put um, the concerns about the financial system in the first place before they concern, they concern themselves about right. inflation. But I then, just don't think. Uh, Steve, uh, let me, let me ahead, ask you an Andrew. economic question. Let's say they do that. And there's this expectation that if they were to do that, the markets would fly. And that would be a good thing for the markets. Is it a good thing for the markets? Insofar as, on the same time, that would be, uh, I mean, you're going to have these disinflationary pressures, but this other inflationary pressure. I think from a central banking point of view, none of that matters, Andrew. The market can fly. The market can do whatever it wants. If the central bank's primary focus is going to be on the credit to the economy and the possibility of credit contraction, which it would see as an essentially disinflationary event, even a right. deflationary event, it would not worry about the impact on the stock market. That would be Steve, I think in the I'm second to... order. In fact, it might even it, right. it might even welcome a, a rally in the stock market, right. Andrew, because that would provide at least some additional liquidity to the market. Right. Steve, uh, I want to thank you. I'm sure we'll be talking to you yeah. a lot more uh, throughout the broadcast in the day. Sure. I want to get back and also talk about the markets, and maybe I'll ask the exact same question frankly, to Mike Santoli, who's tracking uh, this morning's pre-market sell-off. Uh, Mike, I wanna, here's where I want to start, actually, if, if you'd indulge me. It's really the question yeah. I asked Steve, which is, does the, does the oh. market fly Sorry. if the Fed doesn't raise interest rates? Or is, is not raising interest rates good news or bad news because it means that there is bad news out there? It's a good question. Yeah, I, I think, think they're going 25. Conclusion, the market would fly. It might get some relief out of that. Just the idea that that's one fewer thing uh, to be concerned about, that the Fed is might maybe going to be tightening into a situation where the financial sector seems a little bit unstable. Uh, but I don't think so. Historically, uh, in the last few cycles anyway, the first rate cut has not necessarily been a bullish sign or the first pause. So you have to see uh, this has been an unusual cycle. I think at minimum where the S&P is right now is in this testing phase. Uh, yesterday's rally never got above Friday's high, so it was a nice little breather that the market got and a little bit uh, of, uh, of recovery, but it didn't get out anywhere near this range. So on the one-year chart, what you really see is that the market has spent the vast majority of the last year between these areas. Basically, it's 3,800, roughly speaking. Oh, that's 3,750-ish yeah, and 41. That's where we've been oscillating. So the December lows, everyone's looking at just a couple percent below where the futures are right now with the S&P ETF is right now. Uh, that's kind of the, the line to say, okay, we're still in this trading range. We're still trying to metabolize what's going on in the banking system. Yesterday, regional banks had a decent shot. Uh, or is it something more? I would point out on, uh, on Monday, the lows were made and, and the market recovered after Europe closed. We have this pattern sometimes where you do have a lot of fear and uh, urgent selling coming out of what's happening in Europe, and then U.S. markets can stabilize after the close in Europe. We'll see if that's the case. One other source of stability, at least recently, Apple shares. Take a look at Apple relative to the Russell 2000. Yeah. Uh, now, obviously, all market instruments tend to go somewhat in sync, uh, and these have largely. I like them because they're also equivalent market caps. A 
essentially. Uh, Apple at 2.4 trillion, the entire Russell 2000 at like 2.2 trillion. And you see a little bit of a divergence here. You know, Apple's held up as small caps have plunged. Apple's role in this type of a market is just pure stability. It's the first national bank of Cupertino, and nobody doubts that it's got the money there. And I, th I don't think that's necessarily the kind of market you want, the one where everyone's flocking into Apple just because it's stable. But that's yes. the one we've had for a couple of days right now. Microsoft also been a real stalwart performer. Take a look at the volatility index of treasuries, the move index. And this is just very stunning on a one-year basis. Uh, you know, we had the two-year note yield above 5% like five days ago. It actually went below 4% for a time yesterday. That is a monstrous move in a short-term treasury instrument. And it shows you people are very wrong-footed and very much asking that question. What does it mean if the Fed pauses, if it raises 25, or if we have to live as we likely do for a week without really knowing what they're going to do? Right. Hey, Mike, before, who do we know, and I don't think we've been able to identify it yet, who the counterparties are to Credit Suisse, who the biggest counterparties are to BNP yeah. Paribas, who the biggest counterparties are to Society General. Do we have a sense of that? Because that would... I want to talk about Apple, but let's quickly hear this. I think. Well, I think the way the market views it is, uh, they're all huge counterparties to one another. Yeah. Um, so it's not so much that... In, in other words, stay away from the banks. S&P has been trading sideways for a year. Uh, look, I want to talk about that S&P trading sideways for a year because it's actually a really good point. Because Mike Wilson over at Morgan Stanley gives us probably the biggest warning that we have to heed for the S&P 500. And there's a big reason that at, at least the way that I'm trading slash investing is the way that I am. Uh, obviously, you know, you get all my buy-sell alerts in the Stocks and Site group. We've got the... Um, uh, coupon code for St. Patty's Day linked down below. But here's the thing. When they specifically talk about Apple, there's something really important about that. And it responds to Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley. Mike Wilson from Morgan Stanley makes the argument that we are going into a recession. Everything is telling us we're going into a recession. However, the stock market, especially the S&P 500, has mostly been trading sideways. That is going to be a massive problem when we get to the next phase of the crisis, which is the earnings recession. Morgan Stanley rightfully makes the point that suggests, or, or Mike Wilson at Morgan Stanley, since there's sort of two parts of Morgan Stanley, one that's like the reasonable, and then there's Mike Wilson who's like really, really bearish. Not saying he's not going to be right, but he's really bearish, and sometimes he lashes out when the market like rises. Everything's a bull, you know bear market rally for him. But anyway... One thing that I really uh, relate to him on is this idea that eventually people will stop being able to spend through this recession, specifically, in my opinion, uh, poorer individuals. So like the bottom half of the socioeconomic threshold. In other words, people making like under $50,000 a year, right? Or, or maybe even more. Bottom half is, is probably more like under 70, 80K. Either way, the point is, that sector, I think, will probably slow their spending as we extinguish or, or basically spend through the excess savings that we have. Bank of America says excess savings uh, for you know the, the middle income tier are still up three to four X what they were before the pandemic. That excess savings are somewhere between twelve to thirteen thousand dollars, which is great. But if that goes away, as JP Morgan thinks, somewhere by Q3, Q4, then you're going to hit an earnings recession. I think that earnings recession is going to hit the S&P 500 most notably. I specifically think the S&P 500 has a greater risk than the NASDAQ of performing poorly. I also think the S&P 500 has a substantially greater risk of performing poorly compared to pricing power stocks. 
Now, I could be wrong about that. Even though I'm a, you know, just because I'm a financial advisor, I run an ETF, I got the courses on building your wealth and every real estate startup, does not mean it's personalized financial advice for you and it could be wrong here. But I personally think the reason you're actually seeing Apple trend up where that S&P is trending sideways is because people are starting to realize, okay, companies that appeal to higher income uh, individuals probably last longer. Look, if the recession ends up being really long, nothing's gonna be safe. But if the recession comes between Q3 and Q1, that is the end of this year, beginning of next year, uh, maybe lower incomes run out of money, whereas higher income, uh, higher incomes don't. And maybe that's why Apple's performing well. Maybe that's why pricing power related stocks, like in my opinion, the chips, energy sector, uh, or the sector like Apple could potentially continue to do very well. So we'll see, but that's sort of my thinking and response to what CNBC here is seeing in the trends. Uh, and I think there's a reason for it. Now, obviously, We'll see, but that's my take. Uh, and if it makes you nervous, get life insurance in as little as five minutes by going to metkevin.com slash life. Apple or Android, pay for it in as little as five minutes. All right, next topic. We got to talk about that Russian jet. All right. Let's talk about that Russian jet, and then we're going to have PPI and retail sales coming out. PPI and retail sales come out in 17 minutes. So obviously we'll be covering those live. I think that'll be really entertaining. So we'll cover that shortly. But uh, a lot of people have been asking me about my thoughts on this Russian jet situation. So I figure, all right, let's just quickly break it down. All right. Russian fighter jet and a military drone from the United States had a little whoopsie doopsie over the Black Sea. And Donald Trump is lashing out. Ron DeSantis is lashing out. Russia's lashing out. And basically everybody's pissed about it. So let's try to go through some of the details because some of it has to do with dumping on each other, like literally dumping on each other. We're going to talk about that uh, and, and just get through this. So basically here's the, the scoop. A U.S. drone was on a spying mission over the Black Sea. It ends up getting intercepted by two Russian fighter jets. The drone we use is an unmanned MQ-9 drone. It's used for surveillance and recon. It's kind of like a fancy version of a really cheaply made Chinese spy balloon. Chinese spy balloon picked up off Craigslist for like 10 bucks. Okay, not really. But our spy drone costs like $32 million. And the price of it is skyrocketing. That drone keeps getting more and more expensive. Everything in aerospace keeps getting more and more expensive. Well, apparently, this Russian jet or one of these Russian jets, I don't know if they were like trying to communicate with it, like, hey, this is an interception, please pull over. I also don't know why I'm using a German accent, but given that it was an unmanned drone, I think the drone is probably like, yeah, exactly, like nothing. And that probably pissed the Russians off. So they tried to wake the drone up. The way they apparently tried to wake the drone up is by dumping fuel on it. Uh, the Russian jets were apparently, quote unquote, harassing the drone, flying over it and dumping fuel on it. It's literally like they were trying to dump on the normies, but I thought usually that only relates to AMC. But anyway, the Russian jets were basically trolling the drone to try to either wake it up or mess with its communications. Uh, and uh, the maneuvers were called reckless by Air Force generals and environmental activists were freaking out because they heard fuel was being dumped above the Black Sea. Uh, even though planes that have to make emergency landings do this all the time. Uh, but anyway, uh, apparently at one point, this uh, drone was struck and ended up crashing into the Black Sea. 
and that drone has still not been recovered. We don't know if the Russians are getting it or if we're able to get it. It's probably not the safest area for us to try to go get it right now. It's probably Russia that's gonna end up getting their hands on our UAV, unmanned aerial vehicle. But anyway, Russia is now claiming that our drone was flying with its transponders turned off because it was trying to spy on the Russian borders. That basically makes it harder for that to show up on Russian uh, surveillance technology. And it basically makes Russia feel like their airspace was being violated. That The fact that they say it was flying around with their uh, transponders turned off is a violation of international law. And it basically implies that the United States is trying to spy on Russia. Which, imagine that, the United States spying on Russia. I mean, that's probably exactly what's happening, let's be real. Uh, but the Black Sea is, is really important. And uh, even though Russia is confirming that there was no shootdown of the drone, that this apparently was an accident, it's still pissing people off on both sides. Really, all sides. There are a lot of sides. I mean, there's like the United States and European side. There's the Ukrainian side, which there's an alignment here. Then there's the Russian side. Then there's the Chinese and rest of the world side, although it's like how much of the rest of the world and China are, are wanting to relate to each other, how much is staying neutral. There are a lot of sides at play here. Then you've got like Ukrainian separatists as well. Uh, then you've got the mysterious people who definitely weren't the CIA who blew up the Nord Stream pipeline. So there are a lot of parties at play here as is typical with war, but it's worth considering why the Black Sea is important in the first place. There are a few reasons for this. First, the Black Sea provides Russia with access to warm water ports because the Black Sea kind of goes up into uh, the Russian borders a little bit. And uh, Russia gets really cold and really icy, uh, especially up north or closer to the Arctic. Uh, so the nice thing about the Black Sea is if you can have warm water ports like in Crimea, Sevastopol, uh, which remains ice-free year-round, you can actually function a lot easier. You know, it's it's easier to function on a warm, sunny day than it is on a freezing day, right? Anyway, a second thing is it also allows Russia to kind of influence trade in that region, which is obviously pretty important. Wheat exports, grain exports, whatever. Uh, then, obviously, the Black Sea is home to Russia's like naval fleet for that side, so that gives them a lot of power in the region, which also explains why we were probably spying on them over there. It also acts as a buffer zone between Russia and NATO countries, which is kind of interesting to think about because you kind of got like Russia, Turkey, and then like a big black sea, uh, and then Ukraine and Crimea, right? So you kind of have a buffer zone that the sea creates, which is interesting. Uh, and then of course the United States likes to monitor this area because well, A, we spy on military activity. We, you know, wanna obviously help NATO out. So we give them our $32 million drones to screw around with. Uh, the goal, obviously, also is to maintain some form of global freedom, whether it comes to trade or otherwise. Now, Donald Trump has freaked out. Uh, I wanted to play this video from YouTube, but YouTube uh, deleted the video. Uh, YouTube's really good at sort of censoring some of this stuff. But basically, Donald Trump is freaking out. He says we're living in the most dangerous times in history. And the only person who can actually save you from World War III is Donald Trump, according to Donald Trump. Not biased at all. <laughs> uh, also, uh, you know, Donald Trump is is uh, responding to calls of potentially supporting regime change uh, in Russia. We just had a Canadian prime minister, not the Canadian prime minister. It was somebody in the prime minister's cabinet uh, who is calling for regime change in Russia. 
that's kind of dangerous and being seen as a way of aggravating Putin even more than he's already aggravated. Uh, anytime we hear about regime change for Russia, it just gives Russia more propaganda to keep the war going on because it allows Putin to basically tell his apathetic Russians, see, they're trying to overthrow me. Look at these clips from the international community saying they want to get rid of us. We must continue to fight to protect our country. And people in Russia are like, all right, we're brainwashed by your media and we half believe it, but like, whatever, we're just going to try to keep living our lives over here, which is kind of frankly now what uh, DeSantis is coming across with. DeSantis is making these arguments that, hey, this is just a territorial dispute and we really shouldn't care about Ukraine and uh, or Russia, that this is just a territorial issue and maybe we should stop funding it. Uh, that's going to be really interesting for the 2024 presidential election, so pay attention to that. Obviously, DeSantis hasn't announced his presidential election yet, but let's just say he's doing a book tour in areas like California at the Reagan Library, which is where all the Republicans go in California. Uh, he is also holding a book tour, or just did, in Iowa, uh, in which you know is kind of seen as like front-running for a campaign. Anyway, a little bit more detail on the Jets involved just because I think it's interesting and we've got nine minutes before we have to cover uh, PPI and, and retail sales anyway. The Russian fighter jet involved was apparently a Sukhoi Su-27. It's a twin-engine, super-maneuverable aircraft designed for air superiority. It actually came into use first in 1985. Our remotely piloted drone first came into use in 2007. Uh, there are a lot of people like Senator Jack Reed, a chairman of the Senate Armed Services Committee, saying, quote, this is a dangerous and provocative act that could have led to a broader conflict. There's a lot of argument that, you know, there are basically politicians who are arguing, that's it. This shows why we need to send more military support to Russia. And then you have basically the counter trend to that saying, dude, no. This is exactly why we should not be involved over there because this is getting ridiculous. We're getting too close to conflict and we don't want World War III. So maybe we need less money. And, and generally what it's turned into is sort of like, I mean, I hate to say it, but a lot more Democrats that are like more money and Republicans that are like less money. And a lot of this debate is going to happen with the debt ceiling uh, debate that's coming up probably in about three to four months as we approach the X date for when we technically hit our debt ceiling limit and we actually run out of money. Since technically we already hit the limit, but we could play accounting tricks until we get to that point. Anyway, uh, the Reaper drone, even though I said it's worth about $32 million, because of supply chain shortages, according to uh, HITC, uh, recently, the costs have gone as much as double for this, up to $64 million for this drone that just got down. It's a lot of money. The United States, after all, is the country that's sending the uh, most of the money to support this war in Ukraine. Uh, no other country is sending as much money to uh, Ukraine as the United States is. Uh, not only that, but uh, a lot of what we're sending uh, is not just weaponry. Some of it is just straight up cold cash. Here's a piece from the Council on Foreign Relations, which shows you that $26 billion of the money that we've sent, the $76 billion we've sent, has straight up just gone to loans and economic support for Ukraine. Only about $23.5 billion has actually gone to weapons, with another $4.7 for, for like grants and loans for weapons. Another $18 billion going to training. Another $3.9 going to uh, humanitarian assistance. This is a, a, you know, a far cry from uh, what other countries and institutions are supporting. You can see here the United States contributing the most. EU institutions 
barely getting above half, uh, actually not even half, less than half of what the United States is contributing. Of course, a lot of people are saying, no, this is a good thing because it's basically the United States being able to uh, conduct war without the United States conducting war. It's, it's all really exhausting, and I think everybody really wants it to end. But uh, then, of course, you've got a lot of people uh, like uh, uh, basically uh, The Guardian reporting that, hey, this is like unprofessional, uh, this collision is dangerous and an international threat. The Deutsche Welle. Uh, reports the U.S. has summoned their Russian ambassador over the drone incident. Both the U.S. and Russia are conducting investigations into it, whatever. People on social media are kind of going all over the place on this. You've got both sides of the argument. I always kind of like seeing what the sentiment is. So you got some people saying, this is an excellent justification for providing Ukraine more money, the fighter jets that they need, and more uh, support with United States base, like uh, aircraft support so they can attack Russian bases. I, I feel like the person might be being a little bit sarcastic, but that is kind of what some people are saying. Uh, then, uh, then you have other people saying, uh, like, this is basically the worst that could happen because, yes, this could lead to more money being spent, and we don't want that to happen because we want this war to end, not to escalate into World War III. Remember Colombia's position on this is like, look, we're not sending a dime because we're not, we don't want to be known as contributing to this war. So uh, anyway, kind of crazy. Steve here in the comments is saying maybe China will broker a peace deal. That's kind of everybody's hope right now is that maybe there could be some form of a neutral party, like a neutral third party that could actually broker a peace deal between the axis of the United States and Europe and Ukraine and the axis of Russia and Iran and North Korea. Although a lot of people question like how neutral really is China. Could China actually be uh, the, the country to broker that peace deal? Who knows? But this whole Russian jet stuff, in summary, is a disaster. Again, you had a Russian jet that dumped fuel on our Reaper drone to try to wake it up, probably because you had the Russians in the cockpit going, you need to pull over right now. I, this is not even meant to be a Russian. I don't even know what it is. Uh, but, uh, but the drone is probably just, you know, like, again, because it's unmanned. And, and that pissed the Russians off. The Russians, again, flying a 1985-style jet. And we're flying a 2007 drone that's unmanned. So a little bit of a mismatch there. They're like on Gen 2. We're on like Gen 5 fighter jets. Like, it's just not even close. It's kind of like them yelling at a robot. And now everybody's pissed off about it. Anyway, that gives you a summary of that. Uh, I think the weapons that we really need are these, these right here. This is a Needler from Halo. I uh, got myself one, and you can too, by going to metkevin.com slash needler, M-E-T-Kevin.com slash needler. Right next to the links for the courses on building your wealth and life insurance you can get within five minutes by going to metkevin.com slash life. <laughs> All right. Next up. Oh, uh, let's get to data. Uh, so we're going to have some big data releases here. In just a moment, let's uh, uh, take a listen here while we wait for that data. Thank you. Yep. Uh, that data. Oh, they're going to go to commercial before it. Uh, that's interesting. Uh, so, um, Fed swaps now pricing in 100 basis points of cuts by December. Good Lord. That's good comedy. Uh, actually, let me see what, what is being priced in right now. Warp. Stand by. Let's see what we got. This is pretty wild. Uh, 
Yeah, futures are nicely red by about 1.5%. But hike slash cut. Wow, yeah. Okay, so the market right now is implying cuts starting in June. That's crazy. Okay, all right. Um, hold on a sec. Uh, worth noting, the market is now cut, uh, pricing in 100 basis points of rate cuts. That's a full 1% of rate cuts by December of 2023. Uh, that seems a little wild to me. I mean, it, it's totally in the face of higher for longer. Right now, the chart is suggesting we're going to get to a terminal rate of about 4.8%. Then we're going to start seeing our first cuts as early as potentially June. And we'll have a full 1% cut getting back to about 3.8% by December. This is a total flip-flop of the chart. This is like an emotional roller coaster. I mean, that's crazy. But that's what the market's pricing in right now. Uh, pretty wild. Okay, now we have PPI and retail sales to cover. We're 30 seconds away from PPI and retail sales. I want you to focus on two very important numbers. Number one, PPI final demand month over month. It's expected to be 0.3. Number two, retail sales month over month, negative 0.4. We want these to come in. Ideally, PPI comes in low. That'd be fantastic. That would reiterate potentially rate cuts this year, although that seems like a dream right now. And the retail sales stable. We don't want them to be too low because that would be recessionary. Here we go. Retail sales match. 0.4 on retail sales. Yes. Oh my gosh. Yes. Dude. Oh my gosh. This is bullish. Bullish, bullish, bullish. Holy crap. Uh, PPI final demand month over month. It was expected to come in up 0.3. It came in at negative 0.1. Negative 0.1. Let's go. That is freaking awesome. Let's go. PPI uh, X food energy trade comes in at 0.2 instead of 0.3. Fantastic beat. Leading indicator. PPI leads CPI anyway. PPI X food energy comes in instead of at 0.4 comes in at zero. Big miss. So final demand headline coming in at a big miss. Uh, food and energy, big miss at zero, basically flat. Minus food, energy, and trade comes in soft at 0.2 instead of 0.3. This is fantastic. PPI final demand comes in year over year. Whoa. Expected to be 5.4. Comes in at 4.6. Big miss to the downside. Bye-bye inflation. Holy moly. PPI X food and energy year over year 4.4. Expectation was 5.4. Big miss. Uh, PPI X food energy trade year over year 4.4. Expectation was 4.8. Big miss and lower than the prior release of 4.5. Retail sales, uh, prior retail sales were actually revised up from 3% month over month to 3.2. This month comes in at expectations, uh, minus 0.4. Uh, X auto comes in at expectation, minus 0.1. X auto gas comes in slightly higher than expectation at flat versus minus 0.2. And then retail sales control group came in a little hotter. This is incredible. Absolutely incredible. I mean, this this is very exciting. Uh, if, if you want to jump on over and get some stocks now, you just go to metkevin.com slash Weeble, get yourself 12 free stocks, start trading on Weeble. Let's go ahead and look at the actual PPI report. Let's also look at the sticks over here. You've got the NASDAQ going from about negative 1.5% on the day to actually going 
up uh, about, uh, well, it's, it's trying to trend up right now. We're sitting at about negative 0.9. But this is a fantastic PPI report. Producer price inflation. Look, index, y'all know I love PP. Uh, you know, I like pricing power. This right here shows we've got pricing power without inflation. This is a fantastic report. Today is the Ides of March. Today is the day that ChatGPT told us the world was going to basically end. But it's not. Instead, we got ourselves a giant halo needler here, which you could get to at metkevin.com slash needler. All right, well, let's go actually into the uh, PPI report and see what some of the details are here. But this is fantastic. Really, really good. I mean, this this is literally what I, what I wanted. Literally 30 seconds before the release, I said, ideally retail sales come in at expectations and inflation comes in soft because that means the recession isn't as bad and inflation is better, right? Dude, we got Merry Christmas with this report. This is fantastic. I don't know. I don't know exactly how the market's going to end up taking it today because obviously there's there are a lot of concerns in the market. Market now pricing in over 100 basis points of cuts. But let's look at actually some of the details here. Wow, this is insane. Decrease 0.1%. Again, the expectation was an increase of 0.4%. Holy moly. Uh, this shows you January was an anomaly. Look at that. The index for uh, a minus food energy trade here, 0.2% after January. It rose 0.5%, right? January was hell. Uh, this is fantastic. Here are the one-month changes with a seasonally adjusted chart right here. And uh, we, we can kind of see that uh, they're really trending under uh, the line right here. If we look at uh, actually all three of these here, final demand, final demand services, final demand goods, all of them under zero. That's great. You see this anomaly right here in January, uh, and rightfully so, an anomaly. We really want to keep this as low as possible. Ideally, we want to be below this red line that I just drew across here, which is about 0.3, 0.4. We're now nicely below that with the exception of that January crisis. This shows you the 12-month trend. It's straight down. Fantastic. Final demand, blah, blah, blah. Okay. I want to get some actual numbers here. Uh, okay, here we go. Some actual numbers here. Uh, index for final demand, inch down, uh, leading declines. Let's see. Prices for transportation and warehousing led declines falling 1.1%. Final demand services, less transportation, uh, warehousing advanced 0.3%. That's not fantastic. Uh, because the service is still, still a little bit stickier, but that's only 3.6%. We can stick with that. We're okay. That's okay. I don't mind that because the Fed's just going to talk that away thanks to FATE, flexible average inflation targeting. Margins for machinery and vehicle wholesaling fell 3.9%. You know, the car, steal, uh, car dealership guy actually had a really good piece on this yesterday. He was basically trying to explain how basically the people getting screwed uh, in car dealerships right now are the car dealers. In other words, auction prices for like buying new cars for the companies are going up, but like average selling prices are stable or falling. It basically means we've said it before on the channel. We've said it many times. The companies are taking it in the margin. They're taking it in the margin. Remember, if you like my perspectives, courses on building your wealth, most popular right now, zero to millionaire real estate, followed by stocks and psychology of money. A lot of people are bundling those. Elite Hustlers is the next most popular. Somebody was asking me for the third most popular one. It's that one. You can bundle all three of those. Email us if you need a custom bundle at kevinandmeetkevin.com. But anyway, the index for chemicals and, uh, um, and, and products, wholesaling, automobiles, automobile parts, guest room, rental, airline, passenger services declined. Oh, that's actually good. Guest room rentals, airline passenger services decline. 
but uh, outpatient care rose a little bit, 0.5%. That's that's a lingering expectation. That's okay. The index for food and alcohol retailing, securities brokerage, dealing, investment advice, and loan services increased. This is because people like Kevin keep raising the prices for their uh, for their courses on building uh, your wealth. Actually, I don't show up in PPI. I don't. At least I don't think I do. I don't. I don't think we get surveyed. If we get surveyed, I'm sorry. But I, that's just the promise we make. The price goes up over time. We add more value. More people join. The price goes up over time. That way, there's there's always a, a reason to join sooner rather than later. Prices for processed goods, and we give you a price match guarantee too, in case that isn't true. Uh, prices for processed goods for uh, intermediate demand moved down 0.4%, uh, whatever that means. Prices for processed foods declined 1.9%. Yeah, you shouldn't be eating processed food anyway. Uh, the index for industrial electrical... Don't, don't even get me started on like diet drinks. And, okay, we're not going down this. Uh, the index for industrial electrical power, primary organic... Okay, whatever. So some chemicals and stuff moved lower. Yeah, because you... Well, well, that's ironic because you spilled them all over in, in uh, East Palestine. Thermoplastics and resins rose 1.8%. Okay, I don't know what half this crap is, uh, but I do know that uh, uh, I want to look at services. So services matters. So the February advance can be traced to a 0.6% rise in prices for services less trade, transportation, and warehousing. Okay, that's not good. So in other words, all services minus trade, transportation, warehouses up at an annualized rate of 7.2%. That's not great. We'd like to see uh, we'd like to see that slow down a little bit. Uh, so we're still seeing some stickiness in services. Uh, again, we want that to go away. Overall, though, we're getting a very good report here. Uh, so I'm very excited about that. Along with that retail sales report, uh, which is uh, which came in pretty decent. Now I want to go to that retail sales report as well. But I'm also going to see if we can get some charts here on uh, to get a little bit more data. So let's go, let's try retail, let's see here. And let's also take a quick look at what the suits are saying on this. But again, both of these reads, absolutely fantastic reads. So I'm pretty happy about these. Uh, all right, March 15th, here's the March 15th release from the Census Bureau on retail sales. Uh, PPI, let me just also tell you quickly what uh, the suits are saying here. U.S. underlying measures of inflation at an industry level coming in less than expected will further fuel the Treasury's rally, yields down is what that means, which in turn will give the Fed scope to slow down the pace of hikes. Well, it does soften financial conditions. Where's the RuneScape party hat, right? Uh, it does look like uh, stock futures actually continuing negative, but whoa! What a plummet on the treasury yields. Holy smokes. Look at that plummet on the treasury yields. My God. Down to 3.47%. Dude, that's really good. The treasury yields are plummeting. Uh, a good thing if you own a bunch of treasuries like Hack does, my real estate startup. <laughs> oh, wow. Look at that. The two-year dropping 31 bips. Now solidly under 4%. 3.9 on the two-year. Look at that. Look at that crash on the right side. Oh boy. All right. Uh, so PPI. All right. Something's showing a little sticky, but overall good news. Okay. We'll keep it on that. What about retail sales? What's happening here? So we know retail sales, uh, you know, came, came in somewhat stable. I don't want to reread some of the numbers here. I want to get to some of the details. Give me, give me the deets. Where are the deets? Here we go. These, these are the deets that I want. Uh, all right. So let's look at some of the deets here. So adjusted. We'll go with the change. I'm going to go with the two month total right here. We're going to look at this change right here, this rate. So what do we have? Furniture stores, total change. In, actually, can I just get a percentage? 
Yeah, okay, this is going to be a lot easier. Uh, Feb 23 advance, month over month. Oh, this is much easier. Okay, so what do we have here? Jan 23, this is the, the two-month average here. December through Feb, here's the two-month. Okay, all right, fine. So where where's the, the heat? That's what I want to see. So the softness... Total retail softness 0.4, great. Motor vehicle parts down 1.8. Automotive down 2. Uh, furniture down 2.5. That makes a lot of sense. Gas stations down. Clothing's actually down here at 0.8. We get mixed reads on clothing. Sometimes it's up. Like CPI, it seemed like it was up. And uh, here in the producer, it's actually coming down. So bad for leading indicators for clothing. Get out of the clothing retailers. I think that's that's one of the, the more... Uh, lower income discretionaries that's going to end up getting whacked in the spy. Healthcare and personal care stores. You know, yesterday we did a uh, fundamental analysis on Ulta, Ulta Beauty. Wow. That's all I got to say. I mean, watch the, rewatch the course member live stream yesterday on Ulta Beauty. But look at this PPI telling you prices going up in healthcare and personal care stores. Ulta actually gave us a reason for that. Uh, but uh, anyway, food and beverage stores up 0.5%. Grocery stores are still getting that food inflation. I'm actually surprised by this. We got this in CPI as well, that appliances were starting to tick up again. Food services and drinking places. Oh, this is fantastic news. Down 2.2%. That's great news for me. Uh, department stores. Love those food services places. Uh, department stores minus uh, 4%. Great. Anything else over here? Not really. Kind of, okay. All right. So this gives us a little bit of an idea percentage-wise. Where's the heat? Really, the heat is in health and personal care. That could potentially be lingering, right? Like lingering in price increases. Um, you know, okay, a little bit of a spoiler alert. Uh, what you're seeing is you're seeing beauty and cosmetics companies come out with more product verticals to start appealing to lower income demographics because they realize we're walking into a recession. That, however, is starting to lead to some of the, the cheaper stuff go up in price, but the more expensive stuff come down in price. They're trying to protect their margins basically by introducing like mid-tier style products. And it's really interesting because you are still seeing health and personal care pump. Like this stuff has done very, very well over the last year to two years. It'll be very interesting to see what goes on forward. Uh, and, and, you know, we talked some more about the valuations of health and beauty and that uh, in the live but uh, but yeah this okay so this is, gives us retail sales this gives us um, what's going on with producer prices I think this is fantastic news here's another update from Wall Street today's data releases were not totally unambiguous what uh, but uh, in other words a little confusing is what they're saying that's a confusing way of saying it, it was confusing anyway on balance it, it cleared room for the Fed to take a step back the PPI data smoothed some inflationary concerns with figures coming in below expectations at, across every major aggregate. Correct. The Fed does not target PPI. This is true. They target the demand side, CPI, PCE. But this is good to know that pipeline inflation is coming down. Uh, Empire manufacturing surveys, even though they're erratic, they're trending down. And really, this just reiterates to the Fed that inflation is is potentially solved here, and now we got to minimize the potential for uh, a uh, uh, you know a, a hard recession here. Uh, okay, so break even inflation yields on this news trending down, looking uh, like they're hitting about two point three three now. World interest rate probabilities. Uh, yep, now increasing again the odds of a rate cut. 
towards the end of the year. So uh, now we're now we're pretty clearly expecting a rate cut by the end of the year. Uh, it's remarkable to me that markets are potentially starting to price in rate cuts as soon as June. It really kills this um, this uh, dare I say um, higher for longer thesis. Yeah, here's Steve who gives us some numbers. Empire Manufacturing coming in at negative 24.6 versus the expectation of negative 7.9 and the previous of 5.8. Thank you for that. Uh, let's see here. Then we've got uh, somebody trying to make a Linus Tech Tip jokes uh, in, in the chat. Uh, <laughs> I saw that video too. <laughs> uh, and then, uh, frankly, I'd be fine with 3% CPI, says the crypto guy. Well, of course, <laughs> because you know the Fed's just going to explain it away with, uh, with fate. So anyway, as usual, check out the programs on Building Wealth. If any of this makes you nervous, get life insurance in as little as five minutes by going to metkevin.com slash life. Get 12 free stocks with Weeble by going to metkevin.com slash free. That is M-E-T, or just use the link uh, down below in the description. Uh, futures right now actually going more negative on this news, even though in my opinion this is fantastic news. This is just reiterating that inflation is not the issue and we should be focusing on pricing power stocks. But hey, the market is so irrational. It, the, the more opportunities they give me to add, uh, the, the more I'll take them. I mean, it's fine with me. So uh, I think this is fantastic. This is just yet again, and this is not like, I, you know I will flip-flop on you. I would, be, I, would be, I would be the most excited person to flip-flop on you because then I could make a wonderful video that get a lot of views that'll say I'm flip-flopping again but I'm not. <laughs> like, this just reiterates uh, the volatile Nike swoosh. Uh, this, is, uh, this is actually very good news. Uh, I think that maybe if the market trends downwards today, it would solely be because, because retail sales came in negative. It just reiterates the idea of, God, now we're not worried about inflation anymore. Now we're actually worried about recession. Uh, that's really the only reason. Uh, but again, uh, I think you can minimize the worries of recession by being exposed to pricing power style stocks. You know, things with big PP. Uh, you know, things with people with money are still going to be spending money on while we get through this disaster. The good news is the quicker inflation falls, the less pain we end up getting from inflation, uh, uh, right? And, and the quicker we could flip-flop uh, and, uh, and, and bail markets out with price cuts. So, uh, yeah. All right. Uh, okay, so that's retail sales for you. Uh, now, let's see here. Before I get to... Uh, <laughs> uh, yeah. Uh, Car for Coin could be some adjustments they're making. I'll check that out after this. Credit Suisse down 30% in pre-market. Yeah. We're going to talk about Credit Suisse. Uh, we'll talk about Credit Suisse right after... Uh, in fact, I'll write that down to make sure I do. Credit Suisse... We'll talk about Credit Suisse right after I give uh, an, uh, some commentary here uh, because a lot of people have been sending me this and, and I know a lot of people just want me to do the finance stuff. I get it, but I also want to cover this because, well, I'm going to do it. Uh, okay, so this, this I promise I'll keep this short. So basically, here we go. Uh, let me write this down. Uh, okay. Mr. Fauci and the Fauci ouchie is uh, freaking out. And I have to say, I, I, like a lot of me wants to maintain as much neutrality as I can for people on both sides. But I really, really despise when people rig the definitions of things. Because, look, you're, Dr. Mr. Anthony, Dr. Fauci is the highest paid government official in the government. 
Okay, he, he makes at least $480,000 a year. Now he's receiving an estimated pension of like $414,000. And obviously there's been a lot of debate about this. Was COVID, uh, did COVID originate from a lab leak theory, right? And Fauci sort of co-directed initial reporting that suggested, no, this wasn't a lab leak. We, we, we get all of that. But what I want you to see is this clip that I'm about to show you. It's really kind of scary about the redefining that we're getting about uh, the natural transmission of COVID and what it means. So I want to show you this. But before I show you this, let me just catch you up, okay? Really quick catch up, okay? Proponents of the lab leak theory argue that COVID-19 most likely escaped from the biosafety level four Wuhan Institute of Virology. It is the first bio-level safety four institute in China, which increases the odds that potentially COVID did leak from there because there is no international body regulating bio levels, uh, biosafety level four institutions. And this is China's first. So you know your first time hurts a little. I mean, your first time, like you tend to make some mistakes, okay? The U.S. Energy Department concluded that COVID-19 most likely was the result of a lab accident in China. The FBI director also supports this conclusion, although a little bit more weakly than the Energy Department. And of course, a lot of people are like, why is the Energy Department and FBI, you know, why do they have researchers on this anyway? Anyway, the whole point of doing investigations into why potentially uh, a COVID leaked from a lab is because we have sent taxpayer money, potentially uh, uh, many millions of dollars to support research at the Wuhan Institute of Virology. Now there are also recent investigations by Congress into potentially being double billed for a research. So in other words, not only did money go to China, but potentially we got double billed for certain things in China. Uh, double billing potentially amounting to about $1.6 million in double billing, billing, but that's a lot. It's not like you double billed me for a hammer that you spent $80 on, which is insane anyway. Uh, but but th these are millions of dollars of double billing. Now, obviously, this is also politically a heated topic because during his presidency, Donald Trump supported the lab leak theory. However, in 2021, the Biden administration shut down an investigation into the lab leak theory that Donald Trump uh, initiated because he deemed it unhelpful. The previous CDC director, Robert Redfield, claimed that Anthony Fauci shut down the debate onto COVID or origins because he, they kind of wanted to control the narrative. Now, Dr. Fauci, which I'm about to show you, freaks out right here. Uh, so there's going to be a nice little freak out we're going to be looking at here uh, and sort of a redefining of definitions, which the redefining, it, it pisses me off the most. Okay. And, and again, I'm not trying to take sides here. I just, I want you to show you how people do mental gymnastics to screw you. Like literally you, you watching this right now, when you see this mental gymnastics, you're about to see, you're going to be like, Kevin, sign me up for your programs on building your wealth. Because if that's the kind of mental gymnastics that happens in the media, I want to know how do I avoid mental gymnastics in stocks? real estate, especially how do I negotiate with people, the elite hustlers group? How do we actually make more money? Because the world, quite frankly, is quite rigged. But anyway, quickly, why is it important? Well, it's obviously very important to determine uh, the origins of COVID so we could A, prevent it from happening again in the future, but also remember the debate that's going on. Like on one hand, people are very upset over the extreme lockdowns uh, that we experienced, the fear, the misinformation, the censorship. Like these are like politically heated topics, right? And we've got people obviously on both sides of the aisle, but I think people just, Americans just want the truth. But this right here, it grinds my gears. Just listen to this like 30 seconds right here and it grinds my gears. Listen it. Okay. Now listen to what he's doing. Listen close. A lab leak could be that someone was out 
in the wild, maybe looking for different types of viruses in bats, got infected, went into a lab, and was being studied in the lab, and then it came out of the lab. But if that's the definition of a lab leak, Jim, then that still is a natural occurrence. Oh, okay, okay. So, wait a second. So, Fauci just argued that, and he's trying to cover this with the idea, well, if somebody got it in nature and then went into the lab and then went home out of the lab, it's still a natural occurrence. Now, there is some massive mental gymnastics happening here because he's really trying to cover with this, in my opinion, for the idea that, well, if you were doing directed evolution inside a lab and you're just infecting monkeys over and over and over again with the most virulent strain of COVID, technically, that's still a natural occurrence. So technically, even though COVID could have leaked from a lab, it still happened naturally. So we're just going to stick with the idea that COVID originated from natural transmission. Now, what really blows my mind is why is there such hardcore defending over China's potential lab leak? I don't know. Is it because Fauci doesn't want, as Elon Musk says, to be prosecuted? Take a listen to the freak out right here. Republicans and Elon Musk for calling on him to be prosecuted. Watch what he said over the weekend. And there's no response to that craziness, Jim. I mean, prosecute me for what? What, what are they talking about? <laughs> I mean, I wish I could figure out what the heck they were talking about. I think they're just going off the deep end. Really? Yeah. Okay. So, all right. Not great. A little bit interesting if you've been following this to pay attention to this because, I mean, in my opinion, uh, it's, uh, it's um, let's just put it, a little sus that now all of a sudden we're potentially redefining what's going on with the COVID lab leak and we're redefining it as basically natural transmission. Uh, that to me is a little bit scary and I don't like that. But the good news is, I was able to get life insurance in as little as five minutes by going to metkevin.com slash life. And in the links down below, you too can get yourself this awesome needler from Halo, which is pretty sick. Double kill. I, I wish I could do that voice. Like, that would be cool. If we could do that those voices on here and I had like a soundboard, it would be sick. Yeah, I love this thing. Okay, next up, Credit Suisse. I promised it, so we got to cover it. You're going to get everything here, okay? You're going to you're going to get everything. So if you come to the streams, I'm going to do my best to cover as much as possible. In fact, my goal now is to stream earlier in the day because my uh my dream is that you basically start your morning, you play me back on 2x or you watch me live, I don't know, however you like it. You like a quickie or, or, or what okay. It, Basically, my goal is to try to give you as much perspective from as much of a neutral point of view as possible. And uh, hopefully that's useful for you. Uh, and then obviously, if, uh, if I could make money to support uh, my startup by doing that, uh, by you know providing awesome value and courses on building your wealth, well, then everybody wins, right? Okay, so now we got to talk about Credit Suisse. 
Now we gotta talk about Credit Suisse because there is a disaster happening with Credit Suisse and it's not good because Credit Suisse is a, let's just say, hugely big bank. And this sucker is down 25% in the pre-market right now. And uh, let me just kind of uh, show you uh, how big uh, this sucker is because it's, it's a problem, okay? First, I'm gonna show you this chart of bank failures. And what I want you to pay attention to is the circles, okay? So right here, you could see the Washington Mutual Bank Failure Circle at $307 billion of assets. Then you have a bunch of other bank failures right here, which are like insignificant, like 440 banks that failed between 2009 and 2012. Nobody cares. Then over here, you got some miscellaneous bank failures. You got Silicon Valley Bank and Signature Bank over here at $209 billion, $110 billion, okay? So those are the circles. Credit Suisse, my friends, is five times as big as the Signature Bank Circle. It is two and a half times as, this, as big as that Silicon Valley Bank Circle. And it is about 60% larger than that Washington Mutual failure. So in other words, a lot of people are freaking out that this banking failure from Silicon Valley Bank is basically just the start. Okay, remember this. In the last week, we had three massive banking failures, Silvergate, Signature Bank, and Silicon Valley Bank. Two of those were the largest bank failures since 2000, the 2008 financial crisis. They both happened within the last week. Now, Credit Suisse, which has already been in hot water, and their stock has basically been straight down. Like you thought Tesla was an easy short? There's been nothing more easy to short than Credit Suisse over, I hate to say it, but a very, very long period of time. I had to zoom out to the week chart, the week chart to show you on Weeble here how bad it's been. Like this right here is the 200 week moving average. And the 200 week moving average is basically straight down, okay? Why? What is going on at Credit Suisse? And could it potentially create more contagion? Well, uh, spoiler alert, uh, yes. The Federal Reserve's buy the effing pivot facility, that's not actually what it stands for, but it is the BFTP facility, only has about $125 billion of available capital to bail out banks. Now, it's possible the Fed could leverage that 5 to 10x or maybe even more, kind of like they did during COVID. So that facility could be leveraged up and then there could be more money, but ultimately that's just going to be money the taxpayer has to pay back. So anybody who's telling you that this is not a taxpayer-backed bailout has no idea what actually is going on. All you have to do is follow me on Twitter at RealMeKevin, and you can actually see the actual treasury facility that backstops what the Fed is doing. And guess where that treasury facility gets money? From taxpayers via congressional appropriations. Okay? Yes. Technically, right now, it's not a taxpayer bailout, but it's backed up by taxpayers. Anyway, so if it gets worse, taxpayers. Something goes wrong, taxpayers. The taxpayers are guaranteeing the bailout, basically. But anyway, what's going on with Credit Suisse? Credit Suisse is a Swiss bank with $578 billion in assets. In other words, it's a too-big-to-fail bank, and the sucker is failing. It is facing a crisis as the largest shareholder of Credit Suisse has just ruled out assisting the bank any further. The bank's one-year credit default swaps are now trading near a, like an insane level of a thousand basis points. That's insane, 
We'll go into a little bit more on that in just a moment. But basically, the largest shareholder announced they can't provide any more financial support, and now the stock's down like 26% in free market. It's probably going to crash throughout the day. It's just not good during this whole banking crisis because it's suggesting that, hey, we thought the banking crisis was over, but wait a minute, there's a big dog in the room that could actually still be on the brink of failing. They were failing before Silicon Valley Bank, and they're still failing afterwards, and they're like two and a half times as big as Silicon Valley Bank. Now, uh, this development comes obviously after a ton of the financial scandals that a Credit Suisse has been associated with, including Greensill Capital and Archegos Capital Management. Remember Archegos? Complete disaster. That was like one of the biggest uh, uh, failures of basically somebody having about a billion dollars in assets, being able to YOLO yeet them up to like $20 billion in assets and then lose everything. Yeah, how to go from 20 billionaire to bankrupt really fast. Anyway, that was a disaster. A Credit Suisse was associated with that heavily. But anyway, it's important to note that in November of 2022, Credit Suisse issued 46.2 million shares to existing shareholders, raising about $4 billion in capital to try to uh, strengthen their capital position. That was extremely dilutive to shareholders. Right now, the stock only has about a $10 billion market cap left. Back in November, which was uh, about five-ish months ago, it had about a $20 billion market cap. So you basically diluted shareholders by around 25%. However, the current refusal to add additional assistance is starting to make people wonder if this bank is ever going to recover. It's kind of like when a, a founder puts money into a startup and uh, you know people are like, oh, that's a good sign. Like they really believe in the startup, right? Like me, I have a housing startup and I'm literally like, uh, risking my entire net worth on this startup. Like if this startup fails, uh, you know, I could go bankrupt. And then it's just like, wow, okay, yeah, you're putting a lot of faith on that startup. So I need to make that sucker work, right? But like if a founder stops supporting their startup or like a biggest shareholder stops putting money in, you kind of make, you kind of start scratching your head. Like, have they hit that point where they're like, this is a sunk cost? Uh, we cannot be a victim of the sunk cost fallacy. The sunk cost fallacy is the principle of we've put X dollars in, but we should not, uh, like, some. the sunk cost fallacy is basically, well, we already put so much money in, well, let's just put in more. Because, you know, if we stop putting money in, we're basically walking away from our investment. And that's kind of what's happening now. They're stopping putting money in. It's, it's Anyway, I won't go with many more analogies. I think you understand the sunk cost fallacy. So anyway, now, the crisis of Credit Suisse because the Swiss bank is having a ripple effect on the European financial sector. Shares of banks have like plummeted to fresh record lows, contributing to a broader disaster in the European bank stock ETS. And the ongoing like struggles basically at Credit Suisse are heightening instability around the entire financial system in the United States, not only leading the stock market and bond market rather now to price in one basis, I'm sorry, 100 basis points or a full one percent cut in interest rates by the end of the year. But they're also starting to make people wonder, is this 2008 all over again? Michael Burry made us basically seem, made this seem like yes. Michael Burry's like, uh, Silicon Valley Bank is just the tip of the iceberg, but everything is rhyming like 2008 and 2000, uh, like 2000 did the dot-com bubble. And this isn't good. This potentially is setting up for another banking financial crisis. And that's kind of being seen, at least for Credit Suisse, in the pricing of their credit default swaps. 
Okay, now CDSs, credit default swaps, are basically a financial instrument that work like an insurance policy. It's kind of like an option, but a little different. It's basically a contract where one party pays a premium to another in exchange for protection against the risk of a specific credit event happening like a default. If the specific event occurs, the party providing the protection pays out the other party. It's a hedge. It's kind of like an option contract, okay? Uh, now, in the case, uh, but they're, they're not as regulated, and this is why we kind of had the 2008 financial crisis, because they're kind of arcane and not as regulated. Uh, they're derivatives, okay? But so are options. They're derivatives. But anyway, in the case of Credit Suisse, a one-year credit default swap is now sitting at 1,000 basis points, BIPs, which means it basically costs a million dollars to insure against $10 million worth of the bank's debt defaulting. That's insane. It's a massive premium for a credit default swap. And it shows how expensive it is getting to protect against this disaster because as the disaster gets more and more real, the more expensive it gets. So basically the bond market and, and the credit default swap market is telling you we screwed. And the ripple effects of potentially Credit Suisse failing would be probably two and a half times as big as the failure of Silicon Valley Bank. Not only that, but remember, when we had Silicon Valley Bank fears, everybody basically flocked to JP Morgan and Bank of America. Bank of America is bragging about how they just got $15 billion of inflows. <laughs> That's a lot of money in inflows, right? Well, if Credit Suisse goes down, it's going to be even worse because that's like, that's one, that's nearly one of the top eight banks. That's insane. It's, it's a huge bank. So anyway, uh, this is uh, uh, sparking discussions about disclosure requirements over recent reporting weaknesses. They're actually literally disclosure weak. Like they just disclose that they lack confidence in some of their prior financial reporting. That's like the last thing you want to tell your shareholders. And so Credit Suisse is trying to deal with not only uh, poorly reported financial uh, uh, disclosures, a falling stock price, their largest shareholder who doesn't want to bail them out anymore, but also their exposure to a lot of high-risk businesses, which is bad. Because if a lot of your loans are to high-risk businesses during a financial crisis, well, things could get worse as basically people default on those higher-risk loans, which is really bad. So in other words, long story short, Credit Suisse is sucking. It's been the easiest short for the last years. It's basically going straight down. And the best thing that you could do is join the programs on Building Your Wealth, link down below. Uh, I'm, I, I can't advise being, being short these because I can't give you personal financial advice. But I mean, if you just, I mean, look at this. This chart goes, this is the 200 week moving average going back to 2017. Dude, it's straight down. I certainly, certainly since 2021, it's been straight down. I mean, go to the day chart. <laughs> this is the 200 day moving average now. This is just sad. It's just trending to zero. It's going to a buck 80 in pre-market down about uh, 28% right now. So even though we had good PPI uh, numbers and retail sales numbers uh, this morning, the market probably is moving down on fears of financial contagion, largely in part due to what's going on with Credit Suisse. So that gives you the latest on Credit Suisse. What's going on there? Check out the linkos down below. Okay. All right, now uh, another non-financial topic, and then maybe we can get back to a financial topic. I'm trying to, oh yeah, we're gonna talk about Uber after this one. So I'm gonna do this quick update, and then I wanna talk to you about Uber, uh, and then I'll probably go to the course member live stream. So that probably means I'll be a few minutes late to the course member live stream, uh, based on what I scheduled it for this morning, but anyway. All right, 
So let's do a quick update on this and then Uber. Dude, there's so much to cover today. This, this is fantastic. I gotta, I gotta start even earlier. All right, ready for this? Here we go. Uh, ba -ba 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 -ba. Okay. Top G, Andrew Tate, has failed to escape prison again. He's just lost his third bail request that was rejected by a Romanian court. Obviously, if you don't know, Andrew Tate is sort of the guy who's been labeled by the media as the face of toxic male masculinity. Oh, that's redundant. But anyway, he was the Big Brother contestant who was kicked off of Big Brother because of allegations of uh, potentially rape, although some people say that video was consensual releasing this allegation. But I don't want to go into the full history here. You know, he's a former kickboxing world oh, kick boxing world champion we know that but more importantly Andrew Tate uh, just had Tucker Carlson talk about him and Tucker Carlson had some interesting things to say about him uh, at the same time unfortunately as Andrew Tate is uh, describing his prison conditions as deplorable claiming he's living with roaches bedbugs and a no light all right. So anyway, uh, despite his incarceration, he's uh, still pretty influential on especially Twitter. It seems like his team is, is posting a lot of tweets. Uh, and a lot of people are, are uh, really seeing themselves as motivated by Andrew Tate. They see sort of some of his either tweets or uh, his, his uh, conversations uh, in videos as motivating, though uh, women especially highly disrespect uh, what potentially could lead to uh, toxicity from men towards women. Tucker Carlson had a take on the positive side on this. So Tucker Carlson responded uh, to uh, Andrew Tate uh, a, or questions about Andrew Tate in an interview with the uh, Nelk Boys in their podcast. Full send. Tucker Carlson said the following, quote, The most interesting thing about Andrew Tate is not Andrew Tate. It's the reaction to Andrew Tate. Why is that bad? I have a son. If someone told my son, respect yourself, be worthy of respect, get up early, exercise, achieve something, I'd be like, thank you. That's the message I'd give my, I give my son anyway because I'm a father. That's what Tucker Carlson says. Now, Tucker Carlson has more insight as well, and we're going to talk about that, but I want to also give sort of the, the critical flip side point of view. The, critical, the critics argue that uh, Andrew Tate basically promotes uh, the objectifying of women promotes harmful stereotypes, things like women belong in the kitchen, they should make you dinner, they should, uh, you know, basically be, be uh, you know, doing what you tell them to do. Andrew Tate does openly advocate uh, talking to women with uh, while holding a sword to make it clear that he's in control. Uh, so then some, I mean, a lot of stories come up and they could just be stories, but there are also, uh, like Newsweek reported on this story of this a uh, girl who was 27 years old in a relationship with a 29-year-old, and she suggests he turned into a rapist because of Andrew Tate. She says that her boyfriend became controlling, frequently belittling, and gaslighting because of the behavior uh, that he's emulating from Andrew Tate. Uh, she suggests that basically he had become extremely controlling and essentially copying exactly what Andrew Tate does to the point of even following an Andrew Tate video to a T where Andrew Tate encourages double booking, which is basically where you invite your girlfriend out on a date for drinks, but then you invite another like side chick onto the same date to express sort of your dominance. And so you kind of get the stories on both sides of the world here. Going back sort of to Tucker Carlson, Tucker Carlson uh, argues that Tate's core message is one of self-respect 
uh, and of self-improvement and living a worthy life. And so you get a lot of commenters that come to the support of Andrew Tate saying things like, hey, well, uh, Andrew Tate, after all, uh, is, you know, just trying to encourage people to be strong. And if somebody is violent or is mean to their girlfriend, that's their problem. And they potentially had that tendency anyway. Now, some people say it's Andrew Tate that sort of encourages that behavior. Going back to sort of the pro side, Tucker Carlson says, uh, I will say it. I'm just being honest. There's something I miss about Andrew Tate, or there are some things that I miss about Andrew Tate, but the spirit that animates from Andrew Tate is very clear and very obvious, and it's not a malicious spirit at all. This is what Tucker Carlson says. Andrew Tate's core message is respect yourself, act like you're worth something, achieve something, do something, get the F off the couch, put down the porn, go do something with your life. You're given this amazing thing, your life, and what are you going to do with it? And I feel like that's the greatest message that anyone could give. And I mean, that's how I read Andrew Tate's message. So of course, it just tells you everything about the people in charge uh, that's threatening. How is that threat? Okay, so so then uh, Tucker Carlson basically goes into this idea that the mainstream media doesn't like this message, that the, the mainstream media or the matrix, as it's being called, uh, the established elite, the mainstream media, law enforcement, the judicial system, basically rally against Andrew Tate because as supporters say, he speaks the truth. Uh, a lot of women take the position that this is making my boyfriend turn into an asshole who's super controlling. But this is where you have Tucker Carlson saying, hey, hopefully if there's good, it's that people are motivated to do something with their lives. And, and uh, you know, I'll sort of throw in my opinions on this a little bit. Uh, and I've been clear about this before. Uh, sometimes people get mad at me when I say it, uh, but uh, I'm I'm very clear that I'm a big fan of going above and beyond respecting everyone, whether they're a man or women, a woman. I, I I just I don't have that in my body to disrespect. Uh, certainly not uh, uh, women uh, or really anybody. Uh, so you know I always like to kind of put that aside. Some people then say I'm kind of like pulling the cop out, which is like, let's not address the bad and just address the good. Uh, but I'm being very clear, like I'm not a fan of that. And and uh, I do think there's a likelihood that people can be manipulated into being more aggressive around their partners because of some of this inspiration. Uh, on the flip side, uh, I'm a big fan of motivational videos on YouTube. I think everybody needs a little bit of motivation. I, I really like motivational videos on YouTube. And uh, Andrew Tate uh, provides some really awesome color when it comes to uh, encouragement for business or your life. And so I, I, I think there, there's nothing wrong with some of those uh, those things, whether it's whether it is waking up early or whether it's not getting taken down by uh, envious people or haters or uh, whether it is being responsible for, for your own actions and taking responsibility. Of course, then people counter argue and say, well, Andrew Tate's not taking responsibility for his potential crimes against women. And now he wants to basically escape jail and get extradited to Dubai where he will uh, or, or, you know, be safe. Now, obviously, there was a big cancer scare for a while that ended up being nothing. Andrew Tate argued that he's too strong to get cancer, kind of reiterating the whole, like, I'm a man argument, because obviously you're not a man if you have cancer, which is like a ludicrous thing to say. But um, yeah, that gives you a little bit of color onto some of the latest here uh, with uh, Top G Andrew Tate. You know, he I bet you he doesn't have a needler. Have you seen these here? This is a Halo needler, which you can now get by going to metkevin.com slash uh, uh, needler, uh, and it's a Nerf gun, uh, so it shoots Nerf bullets. It's really cool. So check that out. Link down below next to the courses on building your wealth. <laughs> 
All right, next up, Uber. Let's talk about the Uber thing. All right, uh, okay. All right, so Uber, Uber, Uber. And then we gotta jump to the course member live stream. Wow, Uber's actually down in pre-market, that's interesting. Oh, well, it was up 5% yesterday when the story came out. Okay, that's fair. Mm, okay. Quick update on the drama regarding Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, and what's going on in California, which is a really big uh, piece of uh, data that you've got to know. It has to do with Proposition 22, especially if you're an investor into any of these gig economy service industries. So here's the thing. First, quick background. There are employees and then there are not employees. Not employees are technically considered independent contractors. Employees are generally considered W-2. Employees work directly for an employer and they're provided with various benefits and protections under labor laws like minimum wage, overtime, rights to overtime pay, uh, rights to half of their uh, payroll taxes being paid, rights to form a union, uh, and, and potentially other benefits that are afforded to the owners of companies are generally also required to be afforded to uh, employees of companies. On the flip side, you have independent contractors who are self-employed individuals who operate their own businesses and typically have more control over their work. They're not entitled to many of the benefits and protections of employees. Well, Proposition 22 in California was passed uh, in 2019, and Proposition 22 made it clear that uh, individuals who work for Uber should be considered independent contractors, that Uber doesn't have to pay sick leave and other benefits for these individuals. However, in a lower court ruling made in Alameda County, which is the same county that shut down Tesla uh, in, in August of 2021, this Alameda County judge found that the law currently conflicts with the state constitution and argued basically that Prop 22 violated the constitution and basically they uh, uh, overturned Prop 22. Now, 22 was a proposition that was voter approved. Now, that's really interesting because Prop 22 was, uh, I may have said 2019, I meant to say 2020. Prop 22 was initially passed in November of 2020 with 58.6% of Californians voting in favor of it. Now, it's really interesting that when 58% of Californians can vote in favor of people driving for Uber or Lyft being considered independent contractors, and then all of a sudden a judge in August of 2021 going, ah, that proposition is unconstitutional, let's overturn it. It kind of makes you wonder if there's California's, uh, like, California judicial overreach occurring, right? And that's a concern to people. People don't want to hear that California is overreaching again, affecting investors really throughout the entire country because California can be setting a precedent for, uh, for like people who work for, say, Uber, Lyft, or otherwise, right? Uh, well, a California appeals court just came out and actually upheld Proposition 22. Uh, now, gig workers are officially going to be classified as independent contractors. This is a huge victory for Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart, and those heavily invested in these. Now, you did have in 2020, the CEO of Uber acknowledged that gig workers deserve better pay, uh, and potentially there could be a third way for them to be classified. So you have employees, not employees, and maybe a third way, where basically um, independent contractors could be offered some form of protections and benefits without sacrificing their flexibility. Remember, the idea is that the independent contractor is in control of the means of production, the car, uh, and their working hours, which suggests they're an independent contractor. 
However, you do have, uh, for example, in London, uh, advocates for uh, these individuals basically being called employees saying, uh, and, and you actually have tribunals in London arguing this. There's a tribunal in London, the Labor Tribunal in London, argued that we find it uh, basically um, ludicrous to argue that 30,000 small businesses all happen to be their own small business, but they all happen to operate under the same app. They have no control of their advertising, how much they get paid, where the customers come from, or the customer service, and you're telling us they're not an employee solely because they drive their own car. So it's kind of interesting. You can kind of see the arguments on both sides, but the big bottom line out of all of this is that right now, Uber, Lyft, DoorDash, Instacart are going to continue being considered independent contractors. These stocks were actually up on that news yesterday, although today everything is sort of down on the news of potentially a banking crisis occurring. Uh, but it gives you a little bit of a look into some of the drama that was going on, and it puts that issue to bed, finally. At the same time, just to mention another issue that's being put to bed, Obviously, Joe Biden is taking massive credit for insulin manufacturers bringing down the cost of insulin 75%. Nova Nordisk just slashed insulin prices by copying uh, the move just about a week ago from Eli Lilly. Nova Nordisk is announcing uh, announced yesterday that it would cut list prices for insulin products by about 75%. Remember, there are different uh, types of, of uh, insulin products. Uh, there are short-acting ones, uh, and then there are intermediate-acting ones, then there are rapid-action ones ones and their long acting ones. A short explanation of that is short acting insulin is what diabetics take before eating a meal so they can regulate their insulin. Long acting is more of like a preventative thing that you keep during the day or take early in the morning to sort of regulate your insulin throughout the day. The point is Nova Nordisk has about a 43% market share of insulin in the US and Canada uh, and they're reducing their list prices to match sort of what Eli Lilly is doing trying to get under $35. Now, Biden is arguing that this is a fantastic move, that now a lot of people are going to get a lot cheaper insulin. But don't kid yourself, Eli Lilly and Nova Nordisk are going to make a lot of money off of this price reduction because now, because the prices are lower across the board, they're no longer have to give, they're no longer going to have to, well, A, face potentially monopolistic uh, risks where basically the government comes in and says, hey, you guys are like a two-company oligopoly over here. We want to you know, cut you up and build, make you smaller companies. By reducing the prices, you kind of reduce that risk for those companies. Uh, so you kind of like, uh, you, you kind of potentially keep power at these two companies. But when it comes to profits, what's really interesting is these companies could potentially actually make more money after reducing prices because now they avoid paying out millions of dollars in rebates to Medicaid programs uh, or even Medicare programs, which is really interesting. See, the federal and state governments generally would con collect rebates from the drug makers. So the drug makers would charge a high premium and then Medicaid, Medicare would, would take money back uh, because they're like, we need to reduce the cost of insulin. So we're going to take money back from your profits. Now they don't have to give that money back. And so they could potentially, for example, Eli Lilly could avoid $430 million per year in Medicaid rebates and potentially make, listen to this, $85 million in new profit, according to Bloomberg, thanks to these lower prices. Uh, Nova uh, could avoid about $350 million in rebates and potentially add earnings of about $210 million. So uh, that's kind of interesting. Now, technically, they won't make any more money on Medicaid sales, 
but across the board, because now they're competing substantially, they're probably going to take a lot more market share of the uh, insulin market at these lower prices. It's good for the consumer because prices are coming down, but it's also, don't kid yourself, pretty good for these companies because now they're not facing potentially congressional antitrust action, and they're going to get a lot more money uh, via, uh, or potentially, according to Bloomberg, actually keep more profits, which is kind of remarkable. So anyway, that gives you a little bit of an update on what's going on with uh, insulin and Uber and uh, the other companies. All right, now what else? Let's do a quick little look here and then we got to jump on over to the course member live stream. All right, so what do we got? Oh my gosh, dude, the 10 years down 20 bips. We're gonna have to start buying real estate soon. Uh, I am flying to Texas. If you're out in Texas, San Antonio, what's on the itinerary? Dallas, Fort Worth, Austin, maybe Waco, all these various different areas. If you're in any of those different areas, hit me up. Uh, follow me on Instagram to see where I'm going at uh, Real Meet Kev, or at Meet Kevin on Instagram. Follow me on Twitter at Real Meet Kevin. Slide into the DMs in either of those places or tag me in Discord. Especially if you're a course member, tag me in Discord. Uh, I got to get myself some coffee and uh, then let's jump on into the uh, course member live stream. So thank you so much. Hopefully you found this Meet Kevin report informative. Uh, we covered a whole lot of more topics than I usually do. So hopefully you enjoyed it. We'll see you in the next one. Goodbye, everyone.